God, we thank you that we can hear from your word, and so I pray that you would use me to proclaim truth. This is not the Michael Porto show. This is all about you and your glory, and so I pray, God, help me to communicate clearly, and um, God, we pray for our own hearts. It's hard to be compassionate. We often want to give ourselves a pass, and instead of overlooking um, what others do to us, we want to uh, call them out on it aggressively, and we want to be eager to judge. Who knows, maybe the person hasn't even done something wrong, and yet, God, we are not compassionate. But you have asked that your people would be people who are like you, and you are compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so, God, I pray that you would make us a people who are compassionate, who grow in compassion for others, who, who don't let sin go by and, and don't make a big deal of it, but, or not make a big deal of it, or not bring it up, but, but rather, God, who address it appropriately, but at the right time, and that we would be eager to give others grace and to care for them uh, in the context of their world. And God, I also want to pray for our understanding of Ephesians 4 today. Uh, past week, we looked at how you care for us and how we can respond to your care. And God, I pray as we look at it again today that you would help us see how within the context of the church that takes place. Grant us a desire to love one another and to care for one another. God, in this time when COVID is interrupting our togetherness and getting in the way of us gathering in the way that we have in the past, God, help us to see how we can still fulfill the moral obligation of the greatest commandment to love you and to love others. Whether we meet together or whether we don't, whether this happens again or whether it doesn't, God, in any way, in any capacity, we are able to, to love you and to love others. So help us to see that from Ephesians today and grant us help this fall as we seek to do church in a different way. In your name we pray. Amen. As you can see, today is part two of COVID Church. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. Last week, we looked, looked at various texts that had to do with this idea of loving God. And so here is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven as a reminder. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment, one that's given out to all people. It uh, doesn't depend on your age or your gender or your status in life, how much experience you have or how little. This is what we as humans are called to do. We are called to love God and to love others. And last week we looked at how loving God and loving others in the greatest commandment is filtered down into, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I clicked the wrong button there. Uh, filter down into the work of the ministry from the greatest commandment to the great commission to the purpose of the church. And finally, as we will look at this week, to the work of ministry. And this is what we are all called to do. We are all called to obey the greatest commandment. And those who stand up and say, I am with Jesus, I want to follow him and take what he has given me, we then are bound by the great commission. And for those who gather and are a part of a local church, whether it's formally as a member or whether it's informally as a regular attender. The purpose of the church um, inherent in it, this being a pillar and a buttress of the truth, that is 
a way that we fulfill the greatest commandment, and finally then the work of ministry, uh, again, which I'll clarify today from Ephesians 4. So that's where we were, where we pick up in our text. Paul has been talking to the Ephesians about the ways that God loves them, how profound and deep it is. And so as you can see on the screen, we're going to go ahead and read it together. And, um, and then after we read, we'll jump in. So please follow along with me as I read the text. I therefore, starting in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul tells the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And what our goal is this morning is to figure out what it is that Paul is talking about when he says walk in a manner worthy and how that impacts them and therefore how that impacts us. And if we think in terms of big ideas or buckets, last week's sermon was about how God has, through the greatest commandment, all the way down to the purpose of the local church, made it so that we as believers have a moral obligation to fulfill to love him above all other things, and then to allow that love to flow into our love of others. And today, if we place this concept of the sermon in a bucket, it's going to be that second bit, that loving God necessitates loving others. That is to say, you cannot be one who loves God and who does not love others. Paul shows that to the Ephesians in here in chapter 4. And there are ramifications for that in our own context as well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to figure out what it means to walk in a manner worthy. And then I'm going to go through the idea that Paul presents that we find in Ephesians 4. And then after that, I'll deal with how that is going to affect us, what that calls us to, what the implications are and then go into more detail at the end about how it is that we're trying to plod this course forward this fall 
with engaging one another, even though we've got issues happening with COVID. So if you'll look at the text, Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And as I'm sure you have heard, whenever the text says, therefore, it's helpful for us to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, if we look back at what Paul has been talking about, he's been helping the Ephesians to grasp and understand these truths about God and his care for them. There's that long sentence in 1, 3 through 14 in the Greek, and Paul there talks about all the ways that believers have been blessed with heavenly blessings. And then in chapter 2, he talks about how they've been saved from their sins. And anybody who's spent any time memorizing scripture would, of course, think about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And then in the latter half of chapter 2, he talks about how they are citizens and members of God's household. And there's some behind-the-scenes stuff going on here. There are issues between the Ephesians that are Jews and the Ephesians that are Gentiles. And Paul's been working for them to see that God is making them into a new man. And so that's why in chapter 4, he deals with this idea of unity, which we find in 2 through 6. And then he picks it up again in verse 13. And that's why he's talking about this oneness, this one body, this one building. That's why this concept of oneness is just expressed over and over because he wants these Ephesians to understand. It doesn't make a difference if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. God's love means that you are now part of a new man that he has made because of what his son has done. And so that's where he's been. And now he calls them to walk in a manner worthy. And the question is, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy? We want to be careful here because if we say that to walk in a manner worthy is what we find in verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness and patience, that means the worthiness of my walk is dependent upon how well I express these things. Not only humility and gentleness and patience, and unity, but everything else that I'm called to do. If my worthiness, if I'm walking worthy, is to behave correctly, then I'm seeking to earn something. And I can't. That's the truth of the gospel. I, I can't earn this. And so what I'm arguing is that to walk in a manner worthy means primarily to walk by faith. And here's how I get there. First, I want to look at two other verses in Ephesians that help us understand the opposite or the antithesis of what it means to walk in a manner worthy. So go ahead and flip back a page. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. One thing I found very helpful when I have a, an idea that's loaded with lots of concepts or a, a text that's loaded with lots of concepts is just get rid of the excess and deal with the core. And so what I see in chapter 2, verse 2, is that they once walked following the course of this world. And then Paul defines what that looks like and explains it further. And we find it Real clear in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so here, to walk as the Gentiles do is to walk 
with a mindset that is set on what I want, and it's not informed by what God provides. It's clearly by what I see, what my mind and my body put before me as what I should be worshiping and pursuing. So there's one opposite of what it means to walk in a manner worthy, and why I'm saying it's by faith, because that's clearly not by faith. Let's go then to chapter 4, verse 17. And here we find that Paul says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And again, there's the statement, in the futility of their minds. And then he clarifies what that looks like. To be futile in thinking is to be darkened in understanding. It is to be alienated from the life of God. Why? Because there is ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And when I read that, I think about Romans 1, where Paul says that people have a hard heart, what is clearly known about God, they reject because they've decided to worship a thing instead of the person or the creator who made the thing. And so here's our second clue as to what it means to not walk worthy. It is, again, to be darkened in understanding. It is to limit our vision to what we can see in front of us physically, what we can desire and what we can want that's earthly in nature. But if we expand our search and go a little bit further, we find some positives of what this looks like. And so there's two verses in Colossians that talk about this and one in Philippians. And I've gone ahead and put in bold the consistent ideas that I think point to why it's to walk by faith and not by sight. And the reason I chose these three passages is because the word manner and life or walk fits in. And so we see clearly in Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then in Colossians 2, walk in Him. And then in Philippians 1, only let your manner of life be worthy. And if you take those parts in bold and you fit them together, what you find is fruit and faith. Look at verse 10 of Colossians 1, bearing fruit in every good work. And then Colossians 2, built up in Him, and then in Philippians 1, side by side, one spirit, one mind. That's all this idea of loving one another and being connected by good works. And then if you look at the faith aspect in Colossians 1.10, increasing in the knowledge of God, 2.6, established in the faith. And then Philippians 1.27, the faith of the gospel. And so here, not the negative, but the positive, what it means to walk in a manner worthy is to have our eyes not be limited to the physical, but to be living in the spiritual world. And the way that we live in the spiritual world is that we fill our mind with the knowledge of who God is. We fill our mind with what he's done for us, how he cares for us. That's why Paul spent the first three chapters in Ephesians unpacking and unloading all that he wanted the Ephesians to think through about his care for them. Because it's that knowledge that's the food, that's the source of power or energy for them to walk by faith. If we take those two ideas to increase in the knowledge and live by faith, which is to love God and to bear fruit in good works and to have unity and togetherness, and then we lay over that our own text, we see that we find those concepts in verse 13, we find increasing in knowledge so we can love him greater and to live by faith and we find unity. And then we see in verses two and three and two through six, this idea of the good works. That's why I say 
I think in what we see in 2 and 3 is more of an issue of the fruit that comes, the how we walk, not the why we walk. And then we also see in verse 15 the good works concept. We can go one step further and we can look at what Paul prayed. So go ahead and flip to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you look starting in verse 18, you'll see what Paul prayed. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And if we look at this prayer that he prays, we find that the core idea or concept that he prays for is that their hearts would be enlightened. I'll put that on screen for those of you there. That the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That's the main thing. And the way that they are enlightened is threefold. That they would understand the hope to which he has called them. They would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that they would understand the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe or towards us who believe, he says to them. And just think through the, con- the context that the Ephesians are in. They're having this issue with unity. And so if we see that Paul is praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, and then we take those three prayers not as um, like a prescription, something that you and I have to pray for, but rather just descriptive of what's going on in their world, We can easily make it fit. Now, I'm not saying I know this for sure, but it seems to fit well that they would know the hope to which he has called them. When they have this idea and concept of the hope to which they have been called, suddenly their mind is focused on unity because they're all called to the same hope. Or when you think about the riches, suddenly when you look at, when you're a Jew and you look at a Gentile and you look at them as one who has within them the deposit of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has been placed in them, all of a sudden that person no longer is someone different from you. Now that person is an image bearer who has the same Holy Spirit occupying their body that you do. Or if we think about the immeasurable greatness of his power, uh, how, here's, how's this for context? We have this face mask thing going on. Um, I've got mine here. I try to do my best to wear it when I can. But I think as far as where I fall in the category, I'm probably just kind of lukewarm. I'm not really firm and hard that it always has to be the face mask all the time. So when I go outside and I go biking or running, I'm not wearing a face mask. But it's also not such that I'm all the way over here where I I, I don't really care what other people think and say, and I just don't wear a face mask. I'm not saying that if you are on one polar extreme or the other, it's for the same motives that I would have. But just imagine that the power that the gospel has allows us to get over differences, not only of Jew and Gentile, but of face mask and non-face mask wearer, of people who make choices that we totally disagree with and yet are labeled believer. That's what he's talking about, is, is that this is what the gospel does. And so the clue that we find here in Ephesians 1 is that Paul is praying that they would have the very thing he tells them to do. He wants them to walk in a manner worthy and he prays that they would understand the greatness of God. 
We can go one other place and we'll do this one quickly. I'll just jump straight ahead and say, he again prays that they would have the ability to understand in their inner being that Christ dwells in their hearts through faith, that they could comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ in their lives. And so that's why I say it's to walk in a manner worthy is to walk by faith. Because all of what Paul has been working for in Ephesians thus far is that they would understand who they are in Christ and what God has done for them. If we think about it in the terms of fruit and root, as I often use terminology this way, I've got an image here for you of the heart head man. So here's a man and he's got a heart for a head, which emphasizes that he is not only thinking with his mind, but also with his heart. And then from that heart is a tree. And the tree just shows that it produces fruit. And so we would understand that the man's heart is his roots. And what we see comes, at, comes out of him is the root of his world. And so the person who loves God at his core loves others. And so in Ephesians, 2, Ephesians 4, verse 2, when they love with all humility or walk with all humility and gentleness and patience, that is the heart that loves God, that walks by faith, overflows into this fruit of walking with faith or by faith with humility and gentleness and patience. And so when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy, he's saying, walk by faith. Be continually reminding yourselves over and over of what God has done. And that's what we need to do as humans. We struggle to keep the reality of the gospel at the forefront of our minds. I don't know if you're anything like me. Some days I can wake up and if I don't work hard to put the gospel into my mind, I might get to six, seven, or eight o'clock and realize I've devoted little energy to it. It's the nature of how I work as a human. And it's something that I have to work with and work around and be intentional about engaging my mind with the hope of the gospel. So I think how I want to handle the rest of this is to just quickly walk through the way that Paul unpacks this concept and this idea of to walk in a manner worthy. And he's working towards this goal of clarifying and explaining to them the gifts that he's given in verse 11. There are three textual issues. One of them is important to us. The other two really don't make all that big of a difference. But they're significant, and I want to address them so that I'm not just leaving them there, um, even though they're a part of the text. They don't really have much to do with the context of what the sermon is about, and so that's why I'm not going to go into real deep water with them. The first is what we find in verse 8. So Paul is working towards unity, and he's talking about how people are all together, and then he quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. And in his quote that we find in Ephesians 4, he says, When he ascended, Jesus... On high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But if you're to flip over to Psalm 68, you'll find that it actually says he receives gifts from men. And if you think about the Exodus, when the Israelites were getting ready to leave Egypt, God, the conqueror, received gifts from the Egyptians and gave them to the Israelites. Except in the story, we don't see God as the conqueror receiving the gifts. We just see the gifts going straight from the possessions that belong to the Egyptians into the hands of the 
Israelites so that when his people went out, since they had been in bondage and in captivity, when they were freed, they now had the appropriate tools so as to survive. Because they needed money, and so they received gold and silver and costly things. And they needed equipment and gear, and they received those things. They needed food, and they received that. And so Paul here is just skipping the middleman, so to speak. Jesus, as the captor, I'm sorry, as the victor in Psalm 68, receives gifts from those that he has defeated, and then he gives them to the captives that he has set free, which is you and I. And that's what leads him then into what he talks about in verse 11 and 12 about giving gifts. And the second textual issue is what we find in verse 9, and also in 10. He ascends and he descends. And I think what Paul's trying to say here is that Jesus was occupying existence within heaven, where God lives. And then that he descended doesn't mean that he goes into hell. Some people will take this and pair it with another verse that says that Jesus preached to those who were in captivity and say, well, look here, Jesus preached to those who were in hell. I think what he's trying to say here is that Jesus was in heaven. He descends to the earth. That's what he says in verse 9. What does it mean? But that he also had descended into the lower regions that is the earth. And then he goes back up. I think that's all Paul's trying to communicate. Then he gets to the gifts where we find our third textual issue. And the issue at point is, what do we do with the way that we understand verse 12? So let me put that on the screen for you. He gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ or for building up the body of Christ. And what I said last week, and really why I spent all of my energy last week from filtering the greatest commandment down to this one core nugget or idea, is that I was trying to show that we don't have to only go to Ephesians 4 and try to understand what's here in order to say that everybody is responsible for the work of ministry. That really, if you take the greatest commandment and work down from there, through the Great Commission, through into the purpose of the church, it's clear that we all are called to obey this command and to respond in kind. So let me just keep it short and simple. And I'll say this, here are the two options that we have. Is it either the gifts are equipping the saints and the gifts are doing the work of ministry and the gifts are building up the body, or is it the gifts are equipping the saints and the saints are doing the work of ministry and the saints are building up the body. And I'll just point out a couple ideas to you. The first is in our text in verse 16. Here Paul talks about the body being built up at the end of the verse. And notice the inclusive terminology that he uses. The whole body, every joint, each part builds itself up in love. So there's that idea of being built up and that idea of it being everybody involved. Let's go down to verse 29 in chapter 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul's saying, your mouths. He's not writing this letter only to the elders in Ephesus. He's not writing it only to Timothy. This is to the whole body. And he says, when you speak, when you're building up people with your words, it's an everybody job. Another idea that I have, or that I think comes from the text, is that this idea of the work of ministry. Ministry is just a simple term. It means to wait tables or to serve. Anytime that you find this word within the New Testament, it's not reserved for people with special training 
or with the right degrees or with certain letters after their name. It's just with anybody. Anybody who's anybody who loves Jesus can do the work of ministry. And then the last idea is that in all of the texts or all of the versions who seek to be more word for word and less thought for thought, when they translate verse 12, they put a comma after the word ministry. It's as if the phrase building up the body of Christ clarifies what the work of ministry is. And so if building up is something that everyone does and building up clarifies what the work of ministry is, that means that the saints are the ones who are doing the work of ministry. It's everybody. It's not just the people who have positions at church or the people who are paid. It's not just those who are voted in to positions of authority. It's for everybody to do. And so Red X, I don't think it's the first one. I think it's the second. And if I were to write it out in picture form, this is actually how I have it in my Bible to remind myself. This is what I say. I say, he gave gifts and gifts in parentheses equip the saints. So it's the saints that are being equipped and the saints are equipped for the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is building up the body of Christ. This is what we do. This is what the church in Ephesus was to do. This was the point that he had for them. And the reason that he drove real hard that they were to be all doing the work of ministry is because at the core of one who walks by faith, who works to make unity, is one who then goes and lives that out practically. That is to say, if it was just the elders at Ephesus who were supposed to be doing the work of ministry, building up the body, then there's a stopping point for all who love God that aren't then able to go out and love others by doing the work of ministry to love them. It would restrict them from moving on to the next step. And if you look in our text, starting in verse 13, the goal is that they will attain the unity of the faith. And it's not just some people, it's all people. To mature manhood. It's like he makes this idea in the text here that Jesus is the head and we are the body. And Jesus' head is full. So we see that there, the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood's the goal. And if you jump down into verse 15, Christ is the head. It's as if we're the body and we're not quite there yet. Just think about a toddler, you know, like two or three years old with a gigantic melon. You know that one day they're going to fit into that head. Actually, Libby and I knew a couple that lived out in the East Coast when we were out there. And they had a son and his head was huge, and the parents were fully aware of it, and so they wouldn't care that I was sharing this story. It was, it was an enormous head. They would refer to it as a big melon, uh, the husband would specifically. And his head was so big that when they bought hats for him, they had to go to the adult section. Just think about a two-year-old with a head that's so big that it, it was actually bigger than my head. I mean, it was just a gigantic head. And that's the idea here. Jesus' head, as the head, he's already fully grown, and we are to grow up into it. And the goal is that We're not then tossed to and fro like he talks about in verse 14. We're no longer children. We're full in size. We're not carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's what he wants the Ephesians to avoid. That's what we also ought to be avoiding. This building up of the body, it is what leads into not being taken captive. It is what leads into not being tossed to and fro. This building up of the body, this is what gets us to be full, mature 
in size so that we equal the size of the head, which is Christ. And I think maybe when we come to verse 14, we might, we might be a little, we might lack compassion. I'll just say it that way. We might too eagerly look at those around us and think, well, they're the ones who are carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're the ones who fall susceptible to the craftiness and deceitful schemes, and they're caught by human cunning. They're tossed by the waves. And maybe if we don't do that to other people in the church, we're probably pretty likely to do that to people outside of church. We're eager to say, well, it's people who are not doctrinally informed who are tossed to and fro. But maybe we're defining what it means to be tossed to and fro incorrectly. What if we define what it means to be tossed to and fro more along the lines of our heart head man? What if to be taken captive by a wind of doctrine is to believe that God is not who he says he is? What if to be taken by human cunning is to buy into the lie that that car that I want or that home that I want, that my money is better used on loving myself instead of loving my neighbor? Or maybe I'm taking lots of vacations throughout the year and I'm not using my time to love other people. Instead, I'm using my, kind, my time for my own fulfillment to check off all the boxes on the bucket list of the things that I want to see before I die. I'm just pressing in here a little bit to some of the ways that you and I might not be compassionate when we look at other people and say, well, they're taken captive. But you and I, in reality, every day, are taken captive by the lie that occupies space in our minds and our hearts that says that God is not good and that we are not to love other people. And that's what Paul wants them to fight against. And that's why he wants them to build up the body so that all of them are not taken captive. So that's how he wants them to walk by faith. And he wants them to be pursuing this so that they are not taken captive, so that they do all together work towards growing up into the body. And that's what he prayed about. That's what he shared with them. That's what he told them he was praying about. That was the goal for Paul. And this is really easily transferable for us here at Memorial. As we're trying to do COVID church this fall, this is what we are called to do. Let me, let me press in a little harder and say this, that it is not an act of love to be a part of a church and to only fill your time with studying the scriptures, memorizing them, doing Bible studies and the like. Because if that does not work its way out practically into caring for other people, building up other people, loving other people, there's a biblical term for that and that's pharisaicalism. When we fill our minds with truth and we just stop there, Paul says knowledge puffs up. When it doesn't grow and develop into love, then what it reveals is if we go back to our heart head man, at the core, it's not really a love for God. At the core, it's a love for self. This is what I found to be true about myself. I found that I loved having information about the Bible. I loved being the one who could unlock things for other people. Not so that they would know who God was, but so that they would be amazed by my ability because I felt deeply and profoundly inadequate. And if I could have other people say, wow, you're so intelligent, I could get beyond my inadequacy. And so at the core wasn't this heart 
that loved God and then loved others. The fruit showed that that wasn't the case. Boy, it looked right, but at the core, it was just somebody who only loved self. That was the motivating factor for the things that I did. Even as a believer, that was one of the large motivating factors for the things I did. It is only because of the grace of God that I am a believer. It's not because of the worthiness and the things I do, but it's because I'm asked and I only can walk by faith. So there's that heart head man again. Love God, love others. That's how it flows out. And so what we're going to be asking all of us to do this fall is we're going to be asking to be engaging one another. And the point isn't just to fill our minds with Bible verses. It's not just to give us all kinds of knowledge about who God is and what he's done. It's so that that grows out and works itself out into caring for other people. So I've got a couple examples and things I'm going to talk through here. Um, but if, if there's something that you can do that goes beyond what I'm doing or is outside of what I'm suggesting here, please jump on board and do that. A real practical thing might be that we have a garden in the back of the church property. And that came about because a couple individuals said, hey, we would love to plant a garden and we would love to use that as a means of providing food for other people. And so as families that are part of the garden back there, as they harvest some of their food, either a lot of it or a little bit of it ends up going to Badger Prairie Needs Network. And as I was preparing for this sermon, uh, somebody sent me a little tidbit And I thought it was really helpful, and so I'm going to share it. Um, And uh, it's not my information, it's from them. So they shared a a blog post, and you actually, if you go on Facebook, you might find the blog post on there. And what it said was, you might not agree with the motives behind somebody doing something, but you might agree with the thing that they're doing. And so try to figure out, do you have to be all the way on board with the motives that they're doing in order to participate in what they're doing? Badger Prairie Needs Network is not necessarily purposed to do the same thing that we are purposed. In fact, if we go to the core of why they exist as an organization, it would be vastly different than why Memorial exists. And yet we can still jump on board with loving others by providing food. And we don't have to agree with everything they do. And so as you're trying to think through ways that you can love people this fall, my ideas are going to be very church-based because that's the nature of what the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the pastor teachers did. They all communicated the word. But then as you take the word, which we're giving to you, and you pair that with who God has made you as a person, that then leads into other ways that you can love people. And so again, primarily I'm dealing with how the church does this, church proper, and you're going to be dealing with how the church lowercase or the church divided or the church scattered, not divided, sorry, the church scattered, how that works out practically. So here's what we've got, a couple different ways. The first is we want you to engage in the word. Think through what I just said about the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teachers. Of those four gifts that God gave, each one of them all does the same thing. They all communicate the word. The evangelists, They take it to places it hasn't been before. The apostles, they're the foundation that it's built upon. They're the primary source that Jesus delivered his information to. And the shepherds and the teachers, they're people who take the word and they give it to people within the context of a local church. I'm forgetting one. Oh no. 
apostles, prophets, the prophets. The prophets foretell about what's to come and foretell about things in the past. I might have had those backwards. So all of this is about the word, and that's the primary means of communicating how God cares for us is through his word. He has spoken most clearly to us, John says, in his word. And so we're all jumping together to engage the word by going through this reader's guide to the Bible. It's a chronological reading plan. There are, I think, five or six readings each week. It gives you a day off. And there are study questions in there that you can look through. And if you want to walk through this, not only with our church together, but if you want to get a group of people together, and you want to say, hey, let's discuss these questions, maybe over social media or maybe at home around the table or maybe it's with a couple other people as you get together at coffee or something like that. That would be a great way for you to engage the word. And we're also asking people to get fighter verses. If we're picking between the two fighter verses and reader's guide, it's still going to be the reader's guide to the Bible. But if you want to sign up for more, then there's the fighter verses. You can find that on the app store. And we'll be going through uh, the first series of verses. It starts with Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And so you could walk into a week on September 6th with that truth running through your mind. Not how many hundreds of thousands of people have died from COVID worldwide. And it's important to know, but we just hear it all the time. And maybe instead of hearing that, maybe along with that, we heard that God loves us, that he's a faithful God, and that he keeps his covenant. So we'll be walking through that as well as the reader's guide to the Bible. And then we're going to be asking you to be engaging others. And specifically within the context of Ephesians 4 verse 12, that is doing the work of ministry, that's building up the body. We're going to ask you to engage in the word, but also engage others. And so I've got a couple examples here, but it doesn't have to be limited to these. I'm going to go through each one of these as a way for you to be thinking through how you can engage others. You might engage as a family. Dads or moms, if you come from a family with a single parent, this one's for you. And if you think through this, I've really just given you worship and reading and, I'm sorry, reading and memorization as a means of or ways, let me start over. I have given you two of the five ideas here of things you can do with your family. You can gather together and you can read one of the texts that we have for our weekly reading and you can work on the verse that you were memorizing together as a body. There are worship resources that are available that I have that I can share with you both through Right Now Media and through some other stuff that we have uh, available on uh, something that's been made available through Facebook as the way that it's being spread. I'm, I think it's Gospel Project. So that's available. Catechism is really easy to walk through. Maybe you don't know what that is. Maybe it makes you think about the Catholic Church and that makes you uneasy. Catechism is just truths about God. So last week I shared two from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first one, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so that would just be something you can just rehearse with your family. Stuff gets in our brains by just rehearsing over and over. And then also we can be, um, as families, we can be praying together. And we've got this prayer that we can be a part of. If you want to be engaging in prayer and maybe dads or moms, you can jump in and you can make your family a part of this prayer email chain. 
and we can send out to you the prayers for the week, and you can, as a family, when you gather together, you can have on different days, different things that you pray for. And then just living life together. Deuteronomy 6 lays out good concept and idea of what we're to be doing as parents. Teach these words to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Take these words and share them with your family. And so don't only just get together and do family worship for 15 minutes or maybe five minutes for your family, but also talk about these things throughout the week. Maybe take what you've been reading in the scriptures and chat with your kids about how that relates to them. So that's one way that you can engage others real practically. Another is through care. This is through biblical counseling or um, soul care as it's sometimes referred to. Let me put this up there for those of you online so you can get that a little more clearly. And you might be asking, what is biblical counseling? Me? Counsel? You must be kidding. You don't want me counseling. Or maybe you're thinking, Michael, you don't want this person counseling and fill in the blank on who that person is. Or where do I even begin? Let me share, let me, let me invite you in by saying this. When somebody asks you what kind of car to buy, you are providing counsel. You have the opportunity for it to be driven by self. Maybe you suggest the same type of car that you have because you want other people to be driving it around because you feel better when other people drive the same car that you drive. That's a little glimpse into my world. Or maybe your counsel is biblical. Maybe you don't just say, okay, here's the most reliable car you can buy. Maybe you say, look, you're shooting for reliability, but right now you don't really have the cash to go buy a car that costs 15 or 20 grand. Maybe the best you can do right now is five grand. And maybe that's not all that reliable as far as long living, but maybe it's reliable as far as you have a job and you need to get from place A to place B. When somebody comes to you and says, hey, um, my neighbor is doing this thing and it's really making me uncomfortable, the moment you open your mouth, you are providing counsel. And so maybe engaging through care, maybe it doesn't have to be that you're jumping on board and maybe it doesn't have to be that you're jumping in six feet under and you're saying, well, that means, okay, never mind. Maybe, maybe you're just thinking through, <laughs> my wife's laughing at me, sorry. Maybe you're just thinking through, I don't know that I want to become somebody who counsels for the church at the level of meeting with people and engaging them every other week or every week. That's okay. It can be something simple. It can be acknowledging that when you open your mouth to communicate to somebody, you are providing them with counsel. And that counsel is either biblically informed or it's informed out of love of self. Or maybe it's just not informed at all. So I want to invite you in. Maybe you do want to be fully engaged and maybe it's only a part. I don't really care. I just want people to capture a vision for what it means to communicate hope and love to others. And so I'll be walking through Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He uses a really easy paradigm of love, know, speak, and do. And he just talks through what it looks like to love somebody and to get to know somebody and what it's like to speak into their world and what it's like to live in their world with them. And you don't have to be somebody who wants to counsel to the level that I counsel people. It could be something very simple. You don't have to call it counseling. You could just call it building up the body if you want to stick with Ephesians 4 terminology. And another way that you could engage is to engage through discipling. Here's one book in particular that you might consider working through. Discipling by Mark Dever, part of the Nine Marks Healthy Church series. This would be really wonderful 
in that it would help you walk through another person so that they would know how to disciple others. A real practical way of building up the body. And I'll just go ahead and put out the elders and the deacons and I'll say, hit one of them up. They know how to do this. They know how to walk through a book with you and, and, uh, and work through it. And that might be something that you would be interested in doing. And let me challenge you and say, don't just stop at the knowledge level. Try to live life together with people. Whatever it is, whichever one of these you're choosing as a means of trying to love others, go deeper than just meeting with them to talk through the Bible. Meet with them to talk through their life and to engage with them and talk about what's going on. One that I didn't mention explicitly, but that is on this original slide is the biography reading. Maybe what you've got time for right now in your life is just a little bit of light reading, not real and engaged at a hard level. And this would be a good place to start. Maybe reading is a challenge. When you read a book that's well-written, that talks about somebody's life, you are, you're walking through their life with them, if they are the one who's authored it. Or maybe you're walking along with the author who looked into somebody else's world, if it's a, a biography. And so here's a wonderful book. I mentioned it last week, the one that you can see on the screen there, Evidence Not Seen by Darlene Dibler Rose. Again, she was somebody who went to be a missionary during World War II and things did not go the way that she thought and yet she testified that God was faithful in the midst of her context. A really encouraging book. You might get together with one or two other people and engage them by just reading this book together. And then also you can engage in prayer. There's the weekly prayer list that we'll update and this will be posted online and also emailed out to you. You can send an email. You can see my email on the screen there. Again, the reminder for all of these is that we're trying to live out walking by faith, by taking in the word, by seeing who God is and what he's done for us, and then also by engaging others and loving others. And I'll just close with this thought. God is calling us to see and savor the goodness of his love for us by engaging the word and then so that we share our satisfaction in his love with those around us by loving those who are around us, both by sharing the word with them and by living life alongside of them. Again, loving God leads into loving others. Out of the roots of a heart that loves God is the fruit of that loves others in real practical ways. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you care for us. We thank you for your word. And God, I pray that you would take your word and that you would use it to just over and over this fall, show us your love, show us your goodness. Like the Ephesians and Paul, God, just Fill us up with the knowledge of who you are and how you care for us, what you've done for us. Help us to walk by faith. And God, as we sit and as we think on and, and ponder over what you have done, as we find that we are satisfied in who you are, that day after day you forgive us, that morning by morning there are new mercies, God, give us a heart to go out and proclaim that love to others. Because the greatest commandment to love you is in part fulfilled by loving others. God, that's what you call us to. Hear us now as we worship. Amen.